Welcome back to another episode of the Misinformation Podcast. John, Tim, and I break down current events, and we try to do so in a mostly moderate way and look at facts from both sides. There are some episodes that you'll find if you go back in our catalog that are um, probably less centrist than others, but that's more just because the, the outside wings were just a little bit wonky during that time period. But now that things have simmered down a little bit, and we were just discussing how our number of listeners per episode is kind of declining as the political climate starts to uh, cool off a touch, you'll notice that we start to get into a little bit more nuance and really look into the policy. And that's really what this past episode and today's episode is all about. If you missed part one of Biden's first 10 days, we went over COVID-19 executive orders as well as some of the more economic executive orders that President Biden issued over the course of his first 10 days. And uh, we talked about how you know there were 42 total orders signed and 13 of those total orders were signed to directly reverse a Trump policy. The 42 in 10 days is a fairly large number. So we, we went over that as well. Today, the plan is to run through his other executive orders covering everything else. You know, the census, the environment, equity, what's racial equity or economic equity, ethics, healthcare, and overall regulation. But real quick, like we start every episode, I want to talk a little bit about what happened in the news this week. Tim, John, anything of note stand out to you guys? Yeah, I think it's, you know, kind of strange because with the Biden administration, you know, I'm listening to the the daily press briefings, which is actually a new thing, right? Because Trump kind of killed off the daily press briefing. It was more like a monthly or every so often press briefing. But, you know, it's boring, <laughs> which is cool uh, because like you had kind of said in our lead in, you know, we were focused so much on the person who was in the Oval Office before um, because, you know, he was so gregarious, let's say. And now it's like, I'm not even focused on the person, right? We're just looking at the policy and being wonky, which is, you know, what I love because I'm a political scientist. I went to school for it. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it's not really like anything's too remarkable going on in politics because it's just policy. It's not a headline grabbing as much. Not that there aren't headline grabbing issues. There's definitely been some exciting things happening in the political sphere. Marjorie Taylor Greene keeps things interesting in the House. Josh Hawley keeps things interesting in the Senate, as do on the left, AOC and Bernie Sanders. Chuck Schumer has been you know, fairly vocal in his new Speaker of the House role, and that's been bringing a little bit more energy than Mitch McConnell has generally, but I think that's more their personality types showing differently in their... Did I say Speaker of the House? I said Speaker of the House. I meant... Senate Majority Leader. Senate Majority Leader. Thank you. Um, I think that's just more their their personalities kind of shining through in their in those positions. I while we're here, you know, I, I don't really like talking about Representative Green uh, Taylor, but the Democrats did take an unprecedented step today in uh, revoking her from all of her committee assignments, which I don't know if it's never been done before or it's just like very rare that the majority party strips a minority member of their assignments uh, because Democrats said to the, the Republicans, we'll give you a chance to strip your committee assignments from her to punish her for, you know, spreading conspiracy theories and also like violent 
sentiments like uh, calling for the execution of some congressional leaders. Uh, no big deal. Crazy. But uh, they still didn't take they did, still didn't strip her of her committee assignments. Uh, so the Democrats did it themselves because they're the party in power. They have that authority now. I, I think that the Jews in space movie remake would be hilarious if it wasn't such a scary concept, right? Like this isn't normal inbounds political theater, like a, a speech that maybe goes a little too far or a joke that is maybe delivered in the wrong way. There, there's full on conspiracy theories coming out of this woman's mouth that involve physical harm against political opponents. Like that's not, that can't be considered inbounds political speech. I mean, she's the right to say it, but not the right necessarily to be shielded from consequences for it. Right, which is why even Mitch McConnell said, you know, her lies are lunacy, and which is great. Like, and we're seeing this chasm um, start within the Republican Party, but you know, who knows how far it will go? You know, I think uh, some former GOP chair of like the Washington State Republicans called in like the Seattle Times uh, like this week for the Republican Party to split in two, one for the traditional Republicans and one of these, you know, new far right wing conspiratorials. Um, and he said, of course, you know, that would mean horrible results politically, right? Because you're splitting their voters. Uh, but he just doesn't see how these two sides and factions can go on as one single party, because clearly the people of John McCain and Mitch McConnell and even Mike Pence are very different from this new class of conspiracy theorists. I'd really love at some point to have an episode about the paradox of tolerance and cancel culture and going back to stuff we talked about with Section 230 and Parler, because I think this is a good example of that. And what where's the dividing line and who sets the dividing line between what's okay culturally and what isn't? And I don't have a clear answer, but I think it would be a fun topic to talk through, because I think this very clearly crosses the line on her part absolutely i think that'd be an awesome episode and it'd be tough to find hard-hitting facts on it but the concept in general and kind of talking through the different ways that cancel culture is used in in different aspects of society i think is a really interesting study and would make a a really fun episode so with that i think we need to start getting into the topic of the day Tim, would you like to run through some of the executive orders again and kind of at the end of each section, we'll do what we did last time and, and stop and discuss some of the specific executive orders and some of the contrarian thoughts to it, as well as some of the pros to each of these orders as well from, from a couple different angles. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, so there's 22 remaining of the 42 uh, orders signed in the first 10 days to discuss Biden has, of course, continued to go on and sign more even after the first 10 days. But we're focusing on these 10 days of action that he determined to be uh, utmost importance uh, to start making change um, to reverse Trump policies and implement his own legacy. So first, you know, we're going to start with some that are maybe not so controversial or maybe more figurative. I mean, we'll cover that. Um, and then some may, might have more meat on the bone that we can really discuss the, the differences between and what we might disagree with. 
but the first topic is uh, one one single order, and that's the census. Um, and that's Biden uh, saying that uh, non-citizens should be included in the census count for redistricting and electoral vote allocation, which occurs every 10 years um, per the Constitution. And this is really a reversal of what Trump was trying to do. His, I believe, Commerce Department under Wilbur Ross was trying to exclude undocumented immigrants and anyone that wasn't a citizen from being counted in the census, which would, of course, mean, you know, wherever there's more non-citizens, there would be less congressional allocation and electoral votes potentially allocated to those states, um, which if you know where like undocumented immigrants live, like Illinois and California, um, at least the last time I looked at the data, are majority ones. Um, and I'm sure there's maybe some conservative ones in there, maybe like Texas, uh, possibly. But I believe the courts were starting to go against what Trump was wanting. And Biden is now formally just saying, we're not even going to try to do that anymore. We're going to follow the historical method of even counting non-citizens uh, because the Constitution is really uh, describing the counting of all peoples in the country, no matter their citizenship. Um, if we want to get you know opinionated here, uh, because the census data is used for a lot more than allocation of you know electoral votes and representation. It's used for things like allocating resources um, and like building infrastructure and things like that of knowing how many people you're servicing with, you know, a new road or something is really important. Yeah. And that kind of internal, you know, support and infrastructure that makes hundred percent sense for the non-citizens. I think that the, the sticking point is the account for redistricting and electoral votes. And I think that's going to be the one that drives a little bit more division in agreement there. I think that more people are going to be on board with saying, yeah, non-citizens should be included in the census count for, you know, all this funding stuff. But, you know, do we count non-citizens if they can't vote for electoral college votes and how we redistribute those or or the redistricting of our areas? Like I can see more of a case for redistri- redistricting being okay to include non-citizens than I can the electoral votes. But I definitely see a strong case for not including non-citizens in the electoral college vote count. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, we'll, we'll never really know, at least for now, under this presidency, what the Supreme Court really thinks about the constitutionality of it, because really they punted on it saying like, yeah, you can try to go ahead with this. Um, we're not going to really rule on it because there's like certain logistical problems here. Um, they were really technical, but they essentially said like, you're running out of time. Uh, because he was like not in you know going to be president anymore so they really just said like it's not gonna really happen so we're not gonna really rule on it um and of course biden then solidified that uh and so now we we really don't know because kind of the court cases are mute are moot uh because there is no president trump anymore going on to the environment uh so there are are a handful of orders signed here, uh, five by President Biden in his first 10 days. And uh, first one is the classification of climate change as a foreign policy and national security priority, um, as well as the setting of a deadline of April 22nd to determine a national emissions reduction target. And, you know, this, at least the first half of that sentence, is pretty figurative, right? It's very important. I appreciate the effort because as the Pentagon stated years ago, climate change is what's known as a threat multiplier. 
it causes uh, certain especially disadvantaged populations to possibly experience droughts um, or other problems and possibly rise up and cause political discord. So it can multiply the threats around the world. Um, so this is a very good thing. It's just it seems more figurative than actually concrete policy change. Yeah, I think you're right on that. It's good to keep it in mind, but it's pretty mushy around what's actually going to happen there. But what's not as mushy is that second half. And that's the part that really kind of excites me as somebody who's leaning more left on the environment than on other issues, um, at least with my own kind of personal sway. You know, determining an emissions reduction target in the next two and a half months, that's pretty exciting. And I'm really curious to see what it is and how it aligns with the Paris Climate Accords and those targets that are set, because we'll talk a little bit more about emissions targets and the details around that in the next few executive orders. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not maybe mentioned here, but I believe it's part of this executive order that it makes the presidential climate envoy, which is John Kerry, I believe, um, or Gina McCarthy. I think John Kerry is our like international climate advisor now, and Gina McCarthy is our domestic it, it makes, I believe, one of them, I believe it might be Gina McCarthy, who's the former lead of the EPA under Obama. It gives her a place at the National Security Council, which is like the internal circle of the president's most high up security advisors, which is really cool, right? Like climate change and the environment now have a seat at the National Security Boardroom. And I think that's huge because when you talk about like the increase in severity of hurricanes and other extreme weather. You know, these are issues that the National Guard gets deployed to and other military branches in some cases just to help with this. And so you talk about national security and the issues that climate change driven storms present. And you need to have a more scientific perspective on how do we address this? Or when we talk about foreign policy, like do we include what they're doing to the environment in how we weigh decisions? Right. Uh, and I mean, some researchers back in 2015 were even linking the unrest in Syria. You know, that's the Syrian civil war that's been lasting forever and saying that it was worsened by the droughts that were seen and experienced in the Syrian area, which is just amazing to say that climate change is directly impacting unrest in other parts of the world. And we know the catastrophe that has resulted from the Syrian civil war. I mean, a, a significant portion of the Irish population in this country is over here because of mold on a potato. So yeah, it's it's not nuts to think that a crisis in another country due to a bad harvest or rising sea levels or bad heat waves couldn't drastically impact the U.S. in the next 10 or 20 years. And that's basic psychology, right? If people's basic needs aren't getting met, like in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're going to figure out a way to meet those needs, or there's going to be incredible unrest. Uh, I think I talked about this in our climate change uh, podcast, which I think is episode five or six, if anyone's looking to give that a listen. I think that was one of the first Tim ones. Uh, but I made a plug for Jared Diamond's Collapse, which is a book about different societal collapses throughout history that he argues are directly tied to things like Poor harvests, uh, poor conservation policies, poor agricultural policies, etc. Uh, and he makes a case that the Mayans and Easter Island are actually maybe in that camp. So 
fortunately it's a little too timely if anyone's looking for some light reading material yeah and maybe to make it a little more you know topical unfortunately i've heard some things about you know climate global warming is actually defrosting some of the permafrost um that's been like you know which is like frozen ground and it releases even even more carbon dioxide that's stored underground of course um but even within like some frozen ice and some frozen ground are dormant viruses which is incredibly scary uh, if those are dangerous um because of course we know the power of one virus in its ability to change the world uh a little too much right now if there are some of these viruses that we've never studied that are possibly locked in the permafrost or the ice and will be unleashed through global warming we really don't know the potential impact of that could be very harmful to the economy to national security we really don't know and that's just because viruses can you know they're not technically really living things uh while they do have like you know rna i believe they're not classified as living and th that's why they're not just going to die they actually like can last longer in frozen temperatures so by melting them you can possibly unleash them um, which just makes a whole wonderful more a plethora of challenges that we might have to face due to global warming. Well, I know what thought is going to keep me up at night tonight. I know. This is so uplifting. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so the second environmental order is the reestablishing of the Presidential Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. So I think what you can hear there is the reestablishing so uh, I believe this was a council of science and technology that was dismantled under President Trump. And so we, we really don't know what the concrete effects of this are or impacts. Uh, but again, I appreciate the intent of having a council of advisors on science back near the president. It's a, it's a big step up from the guy staring directly into an eclipse without sunglasses. <laughs> nice. That really puts it into a concrete example there. It's, I forgot about that picture. It's just... a very low bar to clear, but screw it. We'll take it. Yeah. And I guess it's very similar with this third order, asking the director of the Office of Science and Technology to ensure scientific integrity across the federal government. And of course, this is for, you know, it's, it's figurative. It's a goal. Um, I appreciate the intent. We'll see how it, you know, turns out. But, you know, even with the presidential daily briefings, I mean, now a couple times a week, we hear directly from the CDC, from uh, Anthony Fauci, you know, our ambassador to the WHO. And they're not really interrupted by the politicians. They're really like able to run the press conferences themselves and speak directly to the press, which is refreshing to say the least. So now digging into something a little more uh, meaty, President Biden has officially re-signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement, which is an agreement signed by every single nation in the world, except for, I believe now, Syria. I, I think Nicaragua eventually came on board. So that's everybody but one, uh, and per previously the U.S. So Syria and the U.S. were in a company of their own. And so this will formally rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement within 30 days, which is February uh, 19th. 19th. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Ryan, can you give us some of the uh, details on what the agreement does? What are some positives and potential criticisms of it? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I want to debunk Senator Ted Cruz, who stated on Twitter, by rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, 
President Biden indicates he's more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh. Uh, this kicked off a whole Twitter feud between him and Seth Rogen, but I digress. It was incredible. Seth Rogen comes out swinging on Twitter. Oh my God. He does. He's a good follow. He's he's fun. Um, but no, Ted Cruz is, is very misled here and he's very misleading in this statement. The accord was, or the agreement was signed in Paris. It has nothing to do with the citizens, citizens of Paris, the Parisian government, the French government is involved and there was a recent lawsuit there. Maybe we'll get into that later. But basically the Paris Climate Accord is an agreement that a bunch of countries signed, most in the UN, to limit warming to less than two degrees Celsius, ideally one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So before the industrial revolution and countries signed it, committing to lowering emissions to levels specified in agreement. It provided a framework for financial technical and capacity building support to those who need it. Kind of the way that it's set up, you know, this agreement stands until 2024 and the next round of updates comes in 2025 because according to nature, the country's submitted contributions will only limit warming to about 2.6 to 3.1 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. The agreement does call for ramping up of targets over time, although the 2015 targets are now too weak per their estimates. So according to the projections as it currently stands and the initial targets, uh, we're about 0.6 to uh, 1.6 degrees off um, if we're to achieve these goals. You know, a lot of the critics of the Paris Climate Agreement say that the U.S. is held to a higher standard than some of the other major polluters like China and India. And, you know, that is a, a very fair statement. China and India are not deemed to be at the at the level of you know industrialization per the time of of the writing of this agreement because they are kind of so new to the industrialized scene and so they aren't held to that same standard because you know they haven't been polluting for as long but china's been i mean china produced 28 percent of global emissions last year and the u.s was 15 percent in second place and the and india was seven percent in third place so those are the top three countries, and every single country in the world needs to do something about it. But at the end of the day, those top three, I mean, that's 28, 23, is 31, 51, 58% of the world, almost 60%. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, it's, you know, it is a fascinating agreement. And of course, that every country got on board. And what I wonder about is, you know, it's, it's legal bindingness, uh, if that's a word. And maybe some countries it's totally binding and that's fine. But at least in the U.S., you know, an international agreement, if it's not ratified by the Senate uh, per the Constitution, which says like treaties need to be ratified by the Senate, um, they're not really legally binding. You know, it's more so of a, of a statement or an agreement, but not a treaty. Um, and so that means really that while the U.S. is saying like, yes, we agree with this intent, without the Senate really ratifying it we're really not held to anything uh, within our own borders and of course any actions that need to be taken outside of the purview of the executive branch need to have legislation passed we all know how hard that is even with a democratic senate passing major climate reform through legislation will be incredibly hard if not impossible um, with the thin majority that the Democrats have. So 
while this all sounds wonderful, logistically in the U.S., not sure how effective it will be. Yeah, and that's it's unfortunate that the Senate can't ratify. I don't know how many votes it takes to ratify a treaty. Do you? Two-thirds is standing up, but I don't know if that's correct. Two-thirds, yep. Yeah, so the Senate would need two-thirds majority to ratify uh, a treaty, which is just not going to happen, especially with the Paris Climate Agreement, when you have people like Ted Cruz talking out of their, yeah, not going to happen. And while, you know, the intent there is that we all need to do this together, right? Because all the nations of the world are part of this planet. So we all need to figure this out, especially the largest polluters, you know, China, India, the U.S. But some countries, you know, if it's not legally binding, we'll just say, well, the U.S., you never really, you know, made good on your word through actual actions. So why are we going to do, you know, the hard work as well? I think one of the biggest roadblocks here is that no congressperson wants to come back home and say, I voted for something that's going to cost us jobs in the short term. I mean, ideally, we should be able to go past that. But what we really need to be doing is, I think, just letting people know how advantageous a green industrial revolution would be to this country. If we figured out decarbonization technology in this country, I mean, imagine what that would do for the stock market, for people who wanted to go into that field. I mean, obviously, you know, the person who's working a, an oil field in West Texas might not be the type of person who would work in decarbonization, but suppose the government could put some money up to cross-train them to make that lateral switch. I mean, it, it'd, be, it'd be huge if we could pull that off. Right. And these are the political challenges that are real. While in aggregate, the economic numbers might be wonderfully positive for green energy to say that, yeah, we're going to lose, you know, 10,000 jobs by, you know, not having an oil pipeline run through the country. But we're going to add, you know, tens of thousands or more jobs in green energy if we invest in that. However, when you get down to the personal level, um, which is what politics is, politics is personal uh, and, you know, made up from communities. If you say to a coal miner in West Virginia that they're going to lose their job, you have to ensure that that same person can be effectively cross-trained and offered a job in the new energy environment. Or, you know, of course, they can go somewhere else and do another job, but we need to not leave them behind. You know, in aggregate, you know, we might shut down coal mines in West Virginia and open solar plants in Ohio, but that doesn't really help the West Virginian. That's why this is so politically difficult, because of the transitional uh, friction. It, it really does remind me of the first industrial revolution where people move from the countryside to the city and have to deal with a lot of unprecedented change very rapidly. And you're right, I don't know if there are good solutions. I think in the end it will be a net positive for the country, but it's definitely going to require some political will in the, the near future. Yes, and you know it is, it's a very hard sell to say to a miner, you know, like, you know, we, the politicians or the liberals know what's best for you, right? Or know what's best for the country and sorry, you're getting left behind. That's really, really hard of an argument to make. And of course, we know, you know, when horse and buggies turned into cars, there was a huge job change and industries went away and, and were born. And, you know, that is economic friction. 
Um, that's not to say it can be dismissed. Those people have to be treated humanely um, and we need to figure out paths for them. Overall, in aggregate, we know that global warming will affect us all if you're in West Virginia or Ohio or in you know Syria. Yeah, I think that we could definitely come back to global warming and climate change again and talk about all the actions that are happening. You know, there's going to be more laws passed kind of focusing on renewable energy, on sustainable energy. And this topic isn't going away over the course of the next four years and the next 400 years. I think it's going to be something, well, hopefully it goes away in the next 400 years, I guess one way or the other. But we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to talk about this a lot more. So in the interest of time, I think we should keep moving forward. Yep. Uh, I think to tie that off, it's just the intent is good, but we'll have to see about the effectiveness and, you know, for his fifth and final uh, order in the first 10 days related to the environment is the canceling of the Keystone Pipeline and, you know, the reversal of 100 Trump actions on the environment, which Trump did various things to deregulate environmental uh, regulations. Um, but it, at least we can speak specifically to the Keystone Pipeline. And Ryan, do you want to just describe this a little bit? Just real quick, there's two primary arguments to make regarding the Keystone XL pipeline. The environmentalist side, you know, they oppose the pipeline because it's there's more corrosive properties in the tar sands oil uh, that's coming from the forests of Alberta, and that's primarily because of like the climate there, and there's a lot of science and and geology that goes into that. But basically, just know that it takes more energy, and it's a very high emission producing process to refine that oil. Um, and then also along with that, transporting it is much more difficult than cleaner versions of crude oil that's found in like the Middle East. It allows for a lot of degradation of the pipeline itself, which makes it more prone to leaks, which we've already seen happen. And along with those greater potentials for spills, the pipeline's already slated to run through pretty fragile ecosystems, including crucial water sources and sacred Native American lands. And so people who live there, like farmers who need those water sources to either A, drink, which is something that we all need, or B, grow the food for the rest of the country, which is something that we all need. You know, they're not happy about that pipeline running through their lands, and the Native Americans aren't happy about that pipeline running through their lands. So there's a lot of environmental and some economic opponents to this pipeline as well. Now, proponents of the pipeline on the American side of the border cite the increase in jobs that the pipeline generates, as well as less energy dependence on the Middle East and keeping that production in North America, that primarily just decreases the price of oil in the States, which we did see very low oil prices during the Trump presidency. Now, proponents of the pipeline in Canada like it because it allows them to export more oil to their largest customer, us in the United States, and really drives the Alberta and Saskatchewan economies. At the end of the day, every one of those arguments is factually accurate. And my personal opinion is that we should focus more of our economic resources on sustainable infrastructure instead of making fossil fuel solutions more cost effective. And I think it's important to listen to native peoples and protect our land's natural resources along with combating climate change wherever we can. So I'm definitely in the boat that opposes it, but I understand the other side and see where that argument comes from. Right. And, you know, analysis says that uh, I, I believe somewhere around 10,000 temporary jobs would be created and like a handful, maybe around 50 permanent jobs would be created from the pipeline. And liberals will tell you like, oh, you know, it's just 50 permanent jobs. 
you know, I don't want to poo-poo 10,000 temporary jobs because, you know, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, which is also known as Obama's 2009 stimulus package, made many, many investments in infrastructure to stimulate the economy. And that would be the same argument here. Even a temporary job is money in a worker's pocket that then goes back into the economy and stimulates it. Um, So there's no problem with even temporary jobs. The fact of the matter is where we want to invest, just like you said, Ryan, right? Should we be putting our money into more dirty uh, sources of energy or should we shift to more renewable resources that also create jobs? Yeah, it's like GameStop. If you get in early enough, you can make a quick buck, make a lot of money. But if you're in there for five years, you're going to end up losing in the long run. Put your money in an index fund, forget about it, take it out in 10 years. I was wondering how we were going to talk about GameStop this episode. Yeah, Got so it. fascinating. So on equity, Biden signed seven orders. Um, some of these are, you know, again, more figurative. So he's asking uh, to review all Trump actions about uh, fair housing, which is more figurative, uh, to not renew federal contracts with private prisons, um, which is a huge liberal win um, because private prisons um, are literally for profit. So, you know, liberals um, often criticize them as like out to make uh, more prisoners, right? Because if you're for profit, you have an incentive to fill every bed, uh, which in my opinion should not be the goal of the government to increase the amount of prisoners for a company's gain. No, no. And I think that... um... I agree with that sentiment. And by saying I think that I agree with it, I definitely agree with it. I put out just a little question on Twitter before this episode started. And one of our listeners, Damon, this was actually his favorite executive order that Biden passed or that Biden signed in the first 10 days. You know, I think that from an equity standpoint, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Like, let's get rid of the private prison industry. It does nothing but encourage prosecution for crimes and potentially give greater sentences than necessary. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to be clear, uh, this applies to uh, Department of Justice, federal prison contracts, um, not DHS, the Department of Homeland and Security, which is has some private prison contracts to house undocumented immigrants. Um, so many in the press, especially on the liberal side, are asking the Biden administration, why aren't you doing the same for DHS? They're kind of punting on it right now, saying refer to the new secretary, Mayorkas, um, which is, by the way, the first um, immigrant, I believe, um, and possibly Latino uh, secretary of Homeland Security, which is really cool. We'll see more to come there um, if this is expanded out a bit uh, more broadly across the federal government. Moving on. So a recommitment to engage in uh, meaningful consultation with tribal governments. Again, kind of figurative. Um, I appreciate the intent, right? We should be, you know, acknowledging and seeing the um, dignity and validity of tribal governments. I love this point. Like, even if it is just a little bit more a representative executive order rather than, you know, actual action, the push to kind of get insight from the tribal governments and the people who have lived on this land the longest is super important from an environmental perspective while also making sure that you know these people who are also american citizens are properly taken care of in the way that they want to be like taken care of by the u.s government or not taken care of by the u.s government they were here first all of us white folk 
are immigrants or descendants of immigrants in one way or another. Not just white folks, but anyone that's not Native American. Oh, can. yeah, yeah. So I was thinking like colonial. Anyways, the point is, like, they were here first and they know the land so well. Like, they've got a lot of knowledge that can be really beneficial to our country and to our world. And so we should lean on that knowledge. Next, uh, another kind of more figurative order acknowledging the rise in discrimination against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, asking the HHS, the Human Health and Human Services, to issue guidance on best practices to improve cultural competency towards those groups. So we'll have to see there on what that does you know, concretely, but you know, I appreciate the intent. Fifth and sixth are reversals of Trump orders. So the reversing of the administration's ban on transgender Americans joining the military. And essentially, you know, this kind of got tossed around and reformed over time, I think, under Trump. Uh, But essentially, it said, like, you couldn't ask the government to, you know, pay for your surgeries, and kind of saying, like, you couldn't change genders while in the military, but you could be, you know, a transgender person, it kind of got murky and unclear. Uh, But this does away with all of that and says, like, you will be wholeheartedly accepted in the military, just like any other fully capable American. And I believe, you know, you could even possibly pay for surgeries or the federal government would be paying for gender uh, changing surgeries or gender reaffirming surgeries. You know, the the cost of that is so minuscule, uh, especially as the transgender population is so minuscule that I don't think that is really a issue of substance, but rather a, you know, political um, hot topic that could upset some conservatives that really doesn't amount to many dollars spent. Yeah, right. It's more of a signaling kind of by the right and arguably by the left too, but the left is just making it like, hey, if this is who you are, like be who you are. Next, the uh, rescinding of the 1776 commission, which I know you boys love to discuss, which is kind of a, a response to, I believe, was it the New York Times? Yeah, the 1619 mm-hmm. project. 1619 yeah 1619 being uh the year that dutch traders brought african slaves to jamestown and 1776 being you know another seminal year as a rebuttal to that yeah so john can you kind of describe like what trump was trying to respond to what 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 the 1619 project was intending to do and what he tried to you know bash away with the 1776 concept. I would encourage everyone to go read the 1776 report. I feel like the criticisms of it sometimes come across as being talked up. And I I need you to understand just how bad it is that I'm not making it up. It's not some horrible dream I had. I would encourage you to read it. The gist of it is basically a reply to quote unquote woke history, which we don't necessarily have like enough time to go into that. But basically, it it, it takes a lot of the scholarship that has been written about white America and slavery and the founding of the country, and it kind of speaks out against a lot of that critical race theory, systemic racism, which we're hoping to do an episode on systemic racism with a special guest in an upcoming episode. So plug there. But it's essentially speaking out against academic history that it doesn't like. And 
it does a really bad job of it. There's no other way around it. The things that stood out to me, it tried to plug 19th century progressivism, which is kind of you know, the ideological forebears of the Democratic Party. It tried to connect those to fascism at one point and totalitarianism. And if you know anything about the history of the 19th century progressive movement, a lot of this is stuff like regulations around bars, better working conditions, anti-child labor laws, working with the urban poor, things like that. So that was pretty bad. Talked about anti-communism as being in the same ballpark as the civil rights movement, which was pretty jarring to hear considering, you know, the the number of people who have died in South America because of the United States government arming right-wing death squads to attack anyone to the left of Ronald Reagan. I mean, this this country has a lot of blood on its hands in places like Argentina and Chile and Guatemala and El Salvador because of anti-communist policies that the Reagan administration took. But po- point being, it's just bad history. It glosses over slavery. It's American exceptionalism. It, it paints this picture of the U.S., going back to our, episode, our first episode, as this place that had a couple of slight hiccups with slavery, but we ironed that out and everything's great. And hoorah, we're number one. Go team. And we can talk about to what extent that woke history is right or wrong, but it definitely is better history than the 1776 Commission. Again, I encourage you to read it on your own. And I'm happy to discuss further. Yeah, definitely research both 1619 and 1776 on your own time um, and decide for yourself. But to expedite the rest of these uh, executive orders, let's keep going. So last on equity is preventing of workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, um, which, of course, the Supreme Court ruled over last summer in 2020 um, that employers cannot discriminate on the basis of either of these, which was a huge win for LGBTQI plus rights. But I think the Biden administration is now taking a wider interpretation or a a broader interpretation of that Supreme Court case, whereas the Trump administration just said, oh, this just applies to employment, fine, whatever. Um, The Biden administration now says that because the Supreme Court decided this on an employment question, it really means constitutionally this applies in all spheres of uh, domestic life. And so this could be you know, not only employment, but commerce or even things like sports and federal funding um, to schools who discriminate uh, based on these uh, two classes of identity, even in sports. Um, which has become a huge conservative hot topic again of saying transgender women are going to ruin women's sports. Um, That is a huge argument on the right. You guys have anything to say about that issue? Have you heard about that? I've heard about it, but I don't have like a strong opinion one way or the other. I, I guess I understand it to a point. I guess I understand people who were born of one gender competing with within that gender. But on the list of problems the country's facing right now, I don't understand why that's in the top 20. Well, right. And, you know, again, the transgender community is so minuscule that we're really not talking about something that will ruin women's sports, quote unquote. Even so, you know, there is natural variation in hormones, even within, you know, a, you know, sex, 
from birth that can cause differences in performance. Um, and there are even some conditions where women, you know, naturally have greater testosterone levels. And so we don't try to, you know, just test for testosterone at the door to the gym, right? Like we just let it happen. And I don't think this is a huge issue um, that's going to ruin sports. Uh, but of course, it sounds, you know, it fires conservatives up for sure. Uh, but what I care about most is reaffirming what uh, people see themselves as and what their identities are. Yeah. And like anything where you hear one side say that this thing is going to ruin this very broad thing like oh like colin kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem like ruined football for me it's like okay well maybe you just didn't like football that much to start with and you know i don't know that's that's a side tangent but i don't like those sweeping generalizations kind of in general i'm making a sweeping generalization about it it's the idea that things are great now and if we change it at all this little minuscule change that i can't really criticize on its own volition is going to be the destruction of Western civilization. I mean, people were screaming in the 1840s that the Irish were going to ruin the country. People were screaming that women getting the vote would ruin the country. People were screaming that integration would ruin the country. Country's still here. This is, this is nothing new. Right. Um, and I, I think we need to be in the business of letting people you know, live the lives that they you know, see themselves as, as long as they're not harming anyone. Right. I mean, that's, it's the basis of, uh, I guess, the American way, right? Live and let live. And so moving on to the remaining orders, just one on ethics. So Biden is requiring all of his appointees to sign an ethics pledge um, to hold the independence of the Department of Justice and to be free from personal interest. Again, this is sort of figurative, but I appreciate the intent. He signed a, a seven orders uh, related to healthcare. One is reopening uh, the healthcare.gov exchanges for three months during the pandemic um, to allow you know some people who possibly lost their job to sign up for health insurance through this, the uh, government market, um, which is something that uh, I believe Trump refused to do or uh, you know opened it for a little bit but didn't advertise it. You know he tried to sabotage. Um, healthcare.gov and the uh, Affordable Care Act in many ways. So Biden is saying we're going to, you know, open up that a little bit during the pandemic um, for a special enrollment period. Uh, another policy is to rescind the what's known as Mexico City policy, which bans the U.S. government from funding any nonprofits profits internationally that perform or promote abortion which I think this is a conservative liberal back and forth. So every liberal president rescinds the policy and every conservative uh, puts back the policy, reinstates it. Um, and Trump, of course, re reinstated the policy and Biden has now rescinded it. Um, and, you know, the interesting the thing to note here is that when you cut off funding from some nonprofits that provide reproductive health services, you often then cut off funding from those sources that also provide contraception to um, struggling or developing countries. And a lack of contraception results in more unintended pregnancies, which results in more abortions and possibly unsafe abortions. So the research finds that the Mexico City policy actually achieves the opposite effect. Yeah, this is another one of those kind of right wing virtue signaling kind of kind of actions. You know, there are plenty of examples of policies that can be enacted that actually decrease the number of abortions. 
without straight up outlawing about abortions or eliminating funding to places that perform abortions just because they perform those abortion services and that's a weird way to put it but they perform abortions because of that that fact exactly tim like because they also offer contraceptive services and a lot of times like sometimes family counseling and they offer a lot of other health options to um to women to men uh, but but mostly women in in this perspective this expands i mean you know not here but more generally we can speak to you know the the planned parenthood conversation right if if you have fewer of these services available in especially areas where not a lot of healthcare services are available you result in women lacking access to contraception um, or you know shutting down abortion sites um, and making abortion even illegal or much more restrictive you actually result in endangering the mother and the child further um, through unsafe abortions occurring and more unintended pregnancies occurring. So again, kind of the opposite effect is achieved. Uh, moving on, Biden fortifies DACA, which is uh, the program to protect children that came here un as undocumented immigrants, you know, th really through no fault of their own under a certain age group and allows them to stay here um, and work here legally, uh, kind of on a temporary, uh, I, I, they're called like deprioritized for deportation, um, which essentially allows these children who you know came across the border very, very young, who might now, now be adults, um, but really they came here through no fault of their own and seeing America as their only home, whereas Trump really tried to dismantle DACA a bunch of times, Biden is now saying, you know, we're going to uphold this Obama era policy. That, that tracks, that's consistent with what we expected. Next, this, uh, there's a reversal of the Trump administration's restrictions on U.S. entry for passport holders from uh, Muslim majority countries. Um, so this is the uh, reversal of the Muslim ban from early 2017. So this has nothing to do with COVID travel restrictions. This is uh, what actually candidate Trump had said was a Muslim ban specifically. And then once he was president, you know, the legalese kind of got in the way. And he said, you know, they were high terror countries and things like that, which, you know, it was not really uh, subtle. Uh, but, you know, this was a de facto ban on Muslim majority countries. And Biden is probably getting rid of that. And even, you know, in whatever iteration it ended up being, and I think it changed multiple times over Trump's administration, but we're getting rid of that. And since Trump defeated ISIS, there's now no need for it. So it has been repealed. Well, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> and I agree with, you know, if there are terror prone countries, but don't just choose ones that are Muslim majority. And, you know, what we heard from him as a candidate, that was the intent. Next, it undoes the Trump expansion of immigration enforcement. Um, so this is kind of vague, but saying that, you know, we're not going to ramp up deportations, I believe. I, I don't really have all the details there, um, but really maybe take a step back from deportations. Um, but more to come on that, I would say. Along with that, another order to halt the construction of the border wall. Um, so Trump you know, found a way to sort of fund some building of the border wall through shifting around funds um, through a national emergency declaration. And I believe at the end of the day, uh, even after four years, somewhere around 
five miles of new wall was built. Um, more miles were replaced with new, you know, improved wall, um, but actually new miles added ended up being less than 10. One of my favorite videos. So for those that don't know, I like to climb things. I'm a, I'm a climber, I guess you would say. And I saw a recreation of a segment of, of Trump's border wall get put up by climbers after he said that he had professional climbers test this and it was unclimbable by the best climbers in the world. And the first person to go up it was an eight-year-old girl. And so a little plug for the climbing community there. It, it brought a giggle to my, to my day. Yeah, and I think, uh, so the numbers have changed or have been updated, of course, over time. And I think, you know, it ended up being 15 miles of new wall, 350 miles of replacement, um, another 221 miles of new and replacement wall were under construction at the time he left. You know, I don't know if that the, the construction workers are just going to drop what they were doing, you know, as soon as Biden ordered this. And then there were 157 new uh, and replacement walls, on, you know, being planned. But uh, it sounds like all of that will probably be paused or, you know, completely stopped now. How long is the U.S.-Mexico border? 2,000 miles. Yeah, 1954. Yep. And, you know, there's there's some interesting analysis around the wall. I think we can invest in, you know, we could spend a whole podcast ep- episode on this, but, you know, you can invest in more modern age uh, national security and border patrol. But because we know, like, the wall will not stop tunnel digging which is huge um, in drug trafficking. You could go around it by boat even. And of course, the Coast Guard should be guarding that space. But we know at the end of the day, 40% of undocumented immigrants are visa overstays. So those people flew into the country or came into the country otherwise completely illegally and have just overstayed their visa. A a wall will do nothing about 40% of the undocumented immigrants already here. But, you know, I agree wholeheartedly that drug smuggling Drug trafficking um, from the southern border is an extremely uh, costly problem for the U.S. based on what it has done um, to our healthcare system, to deaths, uh, you know, the epidemic of um, opioids uh, that we're seeing in especially certain states like New Hampshire. These are problems that could be helped by a border wall, um, but I think there are definitely some other tactics we need to be taking, um, like investing in other countries to make their economies more prosperous so that, you know, drugs aren't so rampant there that they come over here. Uh, There are many more creative solutions that, you know, might sound more controversial, right? What I just said is, quote unquote, foreign aid, which, you know, sounds bad to some conservatives. But, you know, if you invest in the right communities abroad, you cause less problems domestically. Also, our support of anti-communist groups in Central America in the 80s hasn't necessarily led to a lot of peace and prosperity in those areas. So and, and to an extent, I think a lot of this is our foreign policy in Central America kicking us down the road. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is the extending of deferrals of deportations for Liberians until 2022. Um, so don't really know a whole lot about that. And then 
Lastly is just one about regulation. So the directing the Office of uh, Management and Budget to modernize regulatory review and really undoing you know, Trump's regulatory approval process. And this, I guess, more largely goes into into the uh, topic of Biden has paused all implementation of any pending Trump regulations, um, which is par for the course, right? A new president always pauses any pending regulations, reviews them, him, her, herself, you know, in the, potentially in the future, and then decides whether to go forward or not. That's really to say that even even if a, a policy or a regulation is very popular, like, you know, some people are saying um, there is a Trump policy, I think, currently paused to potentially reduce the price of insulin uh, or something like that. Yes, it's paused because all pending regulations are paused, but, you know, Biden might very well approve it. You know, we'll have to see. Uh, but this is just standard course of action because regulations, once they're written into code, they're actually, it takes quite a cumbersome process to rewrite them and change them. It could take a couple of years to redo some regulations. That's why this occurs. But that's the extent of the the total 42 executive orders uh, that we've discussed over these past two episodes. Um, Biden is already signing more uh, in the days after his first 10 days, because we're, we're now outside of that 10 day window. We're at day like 17 or so. But, you know, in future episodes, I'm sure we'll cover more uh, as we find them relevant or topical to what we want to discuss. Let's see. I'm trying to find a total list of where we're at so far. I don't think that there's like an updated counter anywhere. Uh, yeah, CNN. So 45 executive orders in the first 15 days, 15 days in office. So that's how it is so far. We did have some questions from Twitter uh, regarding how executive orders work and you know the pros and cons of it. And I think that it really warrants kind of its own episode. So we're going to save those for later and come back at another time and kind of dive into that in a little bit more detail. So hang tight. We'll get to you. But that's a wrap for this episode of the Misinformation Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MissedInfoPod on both platforms. If you have any questions or want to share your opinions on Biden's COVID-19 and economic executive orders or any of the orders that we talked about today in the environment and equity and ethics and healthcare and regulation in more of a long form than Twitter or Instagram can allow for, uh, feel free to shoot us an email at mistinfopod at gmail.com. And a special thanks to our producer, John Schoenheider, for working his audio magic to make John, Tim, and I sound as good as possible. Keep an eye out for new episodes every Monday. Thanks, everybody.